once again, thank you all for joining us. This is Nuance, and I am Mike Scala, joined, as always, by Jay Carter, also known as Timid, the hip-hop artist and chair of BLM Tokyo. What's going on, Jay? Oh, man. Just uh, just another early morning. Hmm. Early morning for you, early evening here, and I got to say, the rain has come back. And I'm not with that. I thought we were done. I kind of was hoping that we had our fill of rain for the entire season, maybe the entire year, because it rained for like a week constantly and we had some sunshine. But nope, back to the rain. Well, I mean, it was like it hit like 60 degrees or something here uh, the other day. And I was hoping that was the extent of winter. But no, wake up and it's, you know, chilly again. So disappointment all around. The eternal optimist. You hope that 60 degrees is the extent of winter. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, and you know, that, that's the best that we should, should have to get or the worst we should have to deal with. I agree. Oh, well, I said, I did see that you were a, uh, on the other side of the, the mic this past week in a, a podcast appearance. Yes, that's right. And it's funny, we've been doing this every Tuesday that I've kind of fallen into podcast show host mode, I guess. And you took even, over. Yeah, that vibe, right? That whole demeanor, even in the way I speak. A friend of mine once said I was with a friend and I was having a, what I thought was a casual conversation. And they were like, and I, I asked a question, right? And they were like, I can't not hear that in your podcast voice, you know, <laughs> like it sounds like we're on a podcast and you're interviewing me, even though we're just speaking as friends right now. So I guess that has become me, but you know what? The experience of doing nuance probably helps me even on the other side, right? Because it's just practice speaking on a live show or recorded show, whatever it is, but thinking on your feet, right? It's, kind of in the same vein as making an argument in court. You know, the more you do it, the more practice you get, the better you get in that type of scenario. And so right. I think that this experience here on nuance is helpful in all these situations I find myself in. Yeah. And and especially in dealing with the the dreaded bane of any sort of live uh performance or broadcast is of, uh, you know, blank blank air you know dead air and having to to think on your feet and move to be able to fill that up so there's just not this this space right well i think the burden of that though falls more on the host right, right. because i wasn't thinking that being interviewed i was just focused on answering the questions i think when the person being interviewed stops that's when the host jumps in to make sure there's no dead air but right this one happened to be pre-recorded, so he also had the benefit of editing out any dead space, which I don't think there was, because it was a very lively discussion about the Queen's Link, and I was on it along with Andrew Lynch, who was the chief design officer of the Queen's Link, and so there was a lot to talk about, and sometimes the host, uh, Ben Max, I gotta shout him out, Max Politics Podcast, Ben Max, for those who don't know, is behind the Gotham Gazette, so pretty prominent New York City publication, and he's, you know, pretty, pretty big time journalist, I would say, here in the city. So sometimes he would ask a question and between the two of us, we all wanted to get our points in. It really wasn't any dead air. It was more a matter of trying not, not to step over each other with what we wanted to say. Right. 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 Yeah. I mean, it must've been, like I said, 
a little bit different from from the norm. Um, did you did you or were you tempted to to ask questions and lead the conversation yourself? Especially if there are other guests, be like, yeah, okay, well, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, that might have happened once or twice, but that might have actually been my attorney side shining through more mm. than the host side because I said something and then the host asked a follow-up question to Andrew and then I jumped in before Andrew could answer. And I said, Andrew, before you answer that, let me just clear something up from what I said because I want to be clear on my answer and not get any any pushback or criticism over what I just said. I want, I want to have a, a, a full record here of the answer. Okay, I made that clear. All right, now, Andrew, now you answer the question. So for that moment, I was dictating the pace of the show and the host was just sitting back like, okay, I guess Mike is now in charge here. <laughs> right, right. That's funny. But that's what lawyers do in a deposition, right? I felt maybe that I had a little bit of liberty to do that because I was brought on as counsel and legal right. to the Queen's link. So let's say the other guest, Andrew, is the witness on a deposition. I might be like, well, hold on a second. Before the witness answers the question, I'm going to instruct him, you know, or whatever. <laughs> I'm there as his lawyer, too. True, true. That's what's up. Yeah. So it sounds like it was a good experience um, overall, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I encourage everyone to go check out that episode because we do talk in depth about the status of the Queenslink plan, especially coming out of the MTA's 20-year needs assessment report, which just dropped this past week. And so there's very up-to-date information in that episode. And I think we laid out very well because the host, to his credit, did a lot of research coming into it. And so he knew what to ask. And he was able to tease out all the factors that play the political landscape, right? The MTA stuff, the technical, more, you know, more technical aspects of the line itself, all these different things so that you can see. He even asked what the opposition was. And that's all my stories now. You can go and get a taste of how I answered that question. What do people say who are against the train? You know, what is your response to them? And so it was a very in-depth conversation. And I was grateful for the experience. That's what's up. That's what's up. But one funny thing that you just mentioned, which got me thinking, you said the dread, but I don't forget how you put it. Was it the, the, the bane or thinking about, I think you, you said dead air, but, but basically this idea of you're going into something like that and you're dreading something, right? Like it's in your head before it even happens. You're saying, uh, I hope I get this right. I hope this doesn't happen. I hope, I hope this goes well. And I always find that no matter what we're talking about, the dread or the anticipation of something is always like a hundred times worse than the actual event. Hmm. No matter what it is. I think we drive ourselves crazy sometimes, whether we have to give a big speech or a presentation at work or you're being interviewed or whatever it is. Right. And really anything that might make you a little nervous, give you anxiety, something we have to get done. Right. Sure. Thinking about it, thinking about it stresses us out more than actually doing it. Right. We think about how bad it's going to be, but it's never as bad as we think it's going to be. That's, that's always my experience. Hmm. No, and and you know that's. I think that's true for a lot of things. You know, um, we build up stuff up in our in our minds that um, you know it can can really put put people off on even trying to do something, or you know, even derail the possibilities, or just mess up the performance in general. You know, I think you know even as performers, people have something similar. Oh yeah, you know, 
oh yeah, you're going to do a show or whatever. And you're thinking and you had all the things that you don't want to go wrong. And right. Right, it could actually cripple the performance. It could, you, you could be crippled with that anxiety to the point you can't perform. And there's something called an optimal performance scale or some graph. Have you ever seen this? There's a graph that shows you that people perform at their peak when they have a little bit of anxiety, but mm. at a certain point of anxiety, you know, we keep increasing the anxiety, the performance is going to go down. And so you want a little bit, but not too much anxiety because a little bit keeps you on your toes and makes you actually think about all the things that you want to get right and not want to mess up. Right. You want to be a little right. nervous about it because you don't want to be too lackadaisical either to the point where you don't right. care. And then you could give in a, a phoned in performance or, you know, just lazy. So there's a, like right. a little, little bit of nerves is good, but not too much to the point where it interferes with your ability to perform. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, and that makes sense. I've never seen that scale, but that's, I mean, that definitely makes sense. And it's, and you know, people tend to have like, especially if it's, you're talking about giving a speech or going out in front of people or doing something like that, you know, people have different ways that they deal with, with those nerves or that anxiety. And, um, you know, when we would, would do a lot of performances, I don't think I ever got nervous that we were uh, about the performance that we were going to do. But I do remember like every time before we would go do a performance or a show, I'd always need food. <laughs> and it wasn't that I was nervous. It's just like yeah. suddenly just I'm hungry <laughs> like, right. for some reason. Right. It could be even a subconscious way. Maybe I don't know nerves or that anxiousness manifesting. I never really you, you know it becomes second nature. I think it does. Yeah, you don't really get nervous even now. If I'm going to give a speech or I'm going to be on a show, I don't get nervous about it anymore. I don't know if I ever really did. Maybe at the beginning when I first started doing that and the whole world was foreign to me or new. Mm. Maybe then I would have nerves. I really don't feel that now. I remember when I did the. Queen's Link press conference that we just did in, in front of City Hall last month. I didn't have nerves that day or really at all. I think it might have just been leading up to it. It was something else that was on my plate that was stressing me a little bit about the month of September when I was thinking, okay, look at my month, look at my calendar. I've got all these events. I've got this press conference. I want to prepare for it a little bit, but I've got these cases coming up. And you just start thinking about all these things that you have to do. And that to me sometimes stresses me or bothers me more than actually doing them. Because after getting through September, I was fine, obviously, right? And I was like looking back on it and thinking, yeah, that wasn't really that bad. It was just every day it was something else. But when you mm. are anticipating all this stress, all this stuff, what can go wrong, whatever, but less so what can go wrong and more so all the things I have to take care of. And then you start to think, I don't have a lot of wiggle room. That's, that's really, I think, for me, I'll start thinking, you know, okay, I can get all this done if nothing bad happens, but let's say, God forbid, I'm in a car accident or something, you know, something that I'm not anticipating comes up, then how am I going to still get all the stuff done if I'm all of a sudden now faced with these other things that I wasn't considering, right? Because now you're on a very tight schedule. So I do start, you start to think about little things like that, right? But I still think that it's just kind of in your head. I mean, thank God nothing bad happened, but oftentimes right. we build this up in our heads, like, you know, man, like this, this is, this is going to be rough. But you just do it day by day, and it's really not bad. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. I think as far as, you know, the public speaking and, and being in front and having, you know, everyone like 
looking at you and whatnot some of that i think you know there was there was experience before that with performing on stage you know what i mean um and i think some of that could be alleviated from that experience because like you know you, you you've you've done it before you've done it a lot you've had right tons of people staring at you when you're the focus of attention and you've got something to deliver and you know everyone's looking at you you don't want to make a mistake and you want to give a good performance and this and that and so like you know it's it's not dissimilar from giving a speech um in front of an audience yeah yeah and two things on that number one i do have a distinct memory of first starting out giving speeches in a political context and thinking wow this is like me getting on stage and rhyming but so much easier because i don't have to make the words rhyme <laughs> so I could just say whatever before it's like I was saying something and trying to deliver a message while also making it rhyme and while also being on beat and while also doing this other thing. Now I just can just say words. That is just so easy, right? It's just one of the many facets of being on stage and doing a rap song. It's you know what I mean? It's like it's like one tenth right. of that. So right. I remember thinking that this is like so much easier. And the other part of it I was gonna make on that. Damn, now I forgot. I lost my train of thought. Um about how, how how much easier it is but how much easier it is yeah so so that was that was the first thing but what, oh oh that's the other point in there you said you said um i wanted to go on stage and deliver something right i have something to deliver whether it's a song or you know performance of songs or it's a speech or what have you but that's the key to it delivering something if you have something to deliver you're more confident and you're less nervous right because yeah. you're not thinking what are they going to think about it i hope I hope they like it no you know that you have something to deliver. This is what you want to say. This is what you want to get across. And so now Absolutely. you don't care, right? That gives you the power. You don't care how it's received. I mean, of course you want it to be received well, but it kind of flips the dynamics around to the point where you're not thinking about that in your head. I'm not, when I'm giving that speech, I'm not thinking, I hope all these people out there like it. I'm thinking, I know they're going to like it, or at least they're going to want to hear what I have to say, and then they can do what they want with it. But there's no reason for me to be nervous about it because I've got something to deliver. And I know that I want to deliver this message. So I'm going to go mm. out there and deliver it. You know what I mean? Right. It's not something that I should worry about. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. And but I think the more prepared you are, and you don't have to go out there and overtly prepare for everything, but the more prepared you are, the more confident you're going to be. And, and that really came into play when I did the debates because I had a really good debate prep team, especially this last campaign that we did, where they laid out everything I would possibly need to know, right? And I remember this also when I was younger, watching debates, let's say for president or governor on TV, and you think, how do they know how to answer all of these questions? It was so impressive to me when I was young. Because in my mind, I was thinking they can literally ask them anything in the world and they're going to come out and they, you know, they usually sound pretty polished at, on that level. Mm -hmm. But you then realize that it's not really a secret what's going to be asked. I mean, if you're debating, let's say, for a New York City Council seat, you pretty much know the universe of questions they're going to ask you about the issues that are relevant to the city council or what are going on in the city that year, right? And so it is pretty easy to prepare for it. not saying that it's easy and, and that it doesn't take effort but what i mean is it's not like some mystery right it's right. information that you need is available to you so if you are willing to put that time in you can learn and really be so prepared to the point where you're not going to be nervous because 
you know everything they're going to ask you. There's not going to be any surprises. And this right. debate prep that I did was so good. They gave me numbers like, you know, how many hospital beds are there at St. John's or whatever, little facts that if I knew, okay, I'm going to get an answer, a question on healthcare, I've got my facts and figures that I can use for that. And once you have that level of preparation, you really don't feel nervous. Maybe you're excited because you know that you're about to kill it. You know what I mean? It's, it's, right. it's like, all right, I'm, I'm good. They can ask me anything. I already know anything that they could possibly ask. And I, I know what I'm going to say about whatever they're going to ask me. And so let's go. There's not, nothing now to, to fear, right? Uh, let's just do it. Right. So yeah, just, is key. but again, it doesn't absolutely. mean you gotta prepare for hours for everything that you do. And that's another trick of being in politics. You might go out and you might have like five speeches in a day. You're not going to spend hours writing every one, but you have to be familiar with the issues and what's going on, be able to think on your feet and be able to draw from what you know, your knowledge and put something together. And of course, there's a skill on that and that takes practice too, but that's sure. also part of your preparation, right? I've done this a hundred times. There's nothing new. Let's go and do it. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, especially if you're talking about, you know, a topic that that you're familiar with. Right. And if you're out there giving speeches and you're talking about something generally that you're passionate about, something that you're working towards, something that you want to say. And so even if you don't remember verbatim what the speech is, you know the material. And so that alleviates some of the pressure as well, because then you can just you can speak from what you know at the same time. And so it really works well that way. Absolutely. So there you go. Some knowledge being dropped on nuance. Boom. That. <laughs> That's what it is. So so the bottom line is everybody should have a chance to go out and get on stage and start rapping. No, no, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> that <flow laughs> don't do that. Huh? What? It doesn't have to be hip hop, but. I think it is helpful to go out there and get some kind of performance experience in of any kind. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it's, it's, it's kind of even been um, recommended that people should do some sort of performance art at, at least try it, you know, stand up comedy uh, on stage singing or something um, theater, um, some kind of performance art. And that deals that, that, helps with this anxiety of public speaking or being in front of people or whatnot. Right. They say public speaking is the number one fear people have in life. Right. You know, it's, I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, there was, um, it was some kind of a, a, a news story where they were talking about that. And I guess some of the younger folks were, uh, saying that, uh, equating forcing people to do speeches in school to some sort of abuse and yeah yeah yeah. and it's like what like (laughs) get over it you know yeah Yeah. we had to go through it you're going through it too get over it and it's a useful skill to have it absolutely is right because there are going to be times in your life when you're going to have to do something Mm -hmm. that resembles public speaking even if it's not giving a speech in front of a bunch of people i mean what if it's making a presentation at work or right right like there's gonna be sometimes and where and maybe it might be uncomfortable but the more practice you have the more experience you have you know you're able to pull from these memories even and say yeah i did that in school and it wasn't terrible again thinking about it was much worse than actually doing it because when you're doing it you don't have time to think about how nerve-wracking this is or you're just trying to focus on getting the thing done right and then you sit right. down and you're like man it wasn't bad at all well why was i dreading this so right um to get ourselves to do that. 
Jeremy in the chat brings up a good point. Um, he said that I get up and speak at civics and meetings a lot. I feel more anxious about what I don't say. And I think that's that's a really good point too, because especially if you're speaking on something, a topic, like afterwards, there's always that feeling of, oh man, I should have said this. Oh, I forgot to do this. Right, right. Yeah. Or if you're telling someone after the fact how it went and they say, did you say this? And you're like, no, but sometimes it didn't yeah. come. It might not be a speech where you can control everything that's said. Let's say someone else is talking back to you or they're asking you questions or someone else is yelling out or, you know, depending on the circumstance, maybe in a perfect world, you wish you would have gotten all that in, but it just didn't go down that way in that moment. Right. Now that, that happens, you know, um, even just in general, when you're, when you're delivering some kind of a message or you're talking about something. So like recently, um this past weekend i was interviewed by a national newspaper here in regards to the state of english teaching in the country mm. and i was like you know i had all these different points that i was like here this 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 blah blah, blah. and you know our time had come to an end and there was just still so much more that i wanted to say and then we were supposed to potentially catch back up later but we never did and then so even afterwards i'm sending him messages in the chat um like oh yeah don't forget this don't forget this like it was just what i didn't get a chance to say but i felt like should be included yeah i had that experience in court not too long ago where i was making my well, <laughs> i think that's a little bit more critical <laughs> <laughs> well now the thing is this though people often don't realize that in court because it's different from what you see on tv in court the written papers are where it mostly gets decided right the oral argument is for questions the judge might have on the margins or things that are bothering the judge or just to give you an opportunity to explain what's going on but they're going to go back and they're going to read everything so when you give your oral presentation you're not covering everything that's in the papers it's just impossible especially mm. If you start to give an outline of what's going on and then you get interrupted with questions, let's say the judge asks you a bunch of questions and then they start moving you and then they say, you only have a minute left, you just can't cover everything, right? And so you have to prioritize your main points. But then sometimes you leave thinking, man, I wish I would have gotten that one point or made that point clearer or said that in a different way or emphasize this or, you know what I mean? Like the points I said were great, but I left this thing out that I didn't want to leave out. That does happen. And then that reminded me, like, remember, you know, in the, in the pregame, we we're talking about that. I just rewatched the um, total slaughter mm -hmm. battle with Joe Budden and Hollow the Dawn. And when you were saying like you're, you've got things you got to get out, and then the judge is uh, asking you questions, and then they're like, "Okay, you only have a minute left." And it just reminded me, thinking like you there being like Joe Budden, like stop my time, stop my time, <laughs> stop my time. Yeah, right. Yo, yo, I didn't. I'm not done. Stop my time. Yeah, yeah. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> So no, 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 no. Stop it. Judge, stop my time. I got more. I got more. Let me get these. Let me cook. Let me get these bars off. Get these bars off. That's right. Yeah. They do um, the appellate level. They're much more rigid in terms of the time and the formalities of it all. When you give your argument, when you begin your argument in appellate court, mm -hmm. they'll ask you, do you want to reserve any of your time for rebuttals? And that's like a rap battle, right? And you can say, right. yes, I've got 10 minutes total. But I'm going to go for eight minutes and I'm going to save two minutes because he's going to go other lawyer. He or she is going to go for 10 minutes and they're going to they're going to respond to what I say. But I'm going to reserve two of my minutes 
to answer back to what they just said, right? Right. It's like my second round, my rebuttal freestyle bar. And that's when you have to think on your feet because you might have an idea of what they're going to say. And of course, you have your papers so you can see what they wrote. But, you know, they might come up with something that was a little unexpected and they're trying to throw you off your game. So in your rebuttal, you want to be able to respond to what they just said. And of course, in your opening statements and your main argument, that's all planned. You can plan that out as long as you want. But you really have to think quick on your rebuttal because now you're responding directly to what they just said a second ago, right? Right, absolutely. So, interesting. Uh, question in the chat, Mike, do you ever get scolded by the judge for leading the witness? <laughs> no, no. But you could. I mean, so if, right. if you have a witness on the stand, you are not, if it's your witness, you can't ask a leading question, right? So you can't ask a question that suggests the answer. What would happen though, most often is the other side is going to object and they'll say objection, leading question. And then the judge would say sustained or overruled. And there's a whole strategy in that. Sometimes you actually want the other side to object a lot because it makes it sound like they're trying to keep things out. They're afraid, right? They, right. they don't want the court to hear. And even if it gets officially, uh, keep kept out people are people still say it, it leaves an impression on people even if they can't officially use it it might come off that thinking wait a minute why are they so nervous what are they what are they trying to hide here why are they objecting to everything coming to light right yeah sometimes you do that as, as a tactic but no the closest i can think to that as far as being scolded by a judge would be sometimes if i make a point and i try to say it in a different way to emphasize it or to highlight a point sometimes i'll say you know counsel you already made that point move on to the next one you get that right true 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 yeah very interesting stuff well what do we got this week yeah speaking of interesting stuff right the mayor mayor adams here in new york city went to latin america to speak with leaders there and even residents, I guess, trying to get to the source of what he calls misinformation out there about why people are so quick to come to the U.S. And mm. this is all an effort really to discourage residents of Latin America from coming here because, as we know, New York City is being hit with the brunt of this. They're being bussed in large numbers to New York. And the mayor is now taking it upon himself to actually go to Latin America to try to put a stop to this or slow it down. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I feel about that. I mean, is is it really his place to do it? I mean, New York is a major city, but it's still a city within the country, and that's international relations there. Um, plus, at the same time, like, they're not coming directly to come to New York. They're coming to the States, and then the internal politics is funneling people to New York, um, which is causing that overcrowding. Now, at the same time, I mean, I, I feel for his position because, I mean, he's in a bad position. I mean, it, the reality is that there is that overflow in New York. It is going to cause a strain or is causing a strain on on the city and the governor nor the administration, presidential administration, seem to be willing to help alleviate that. And so uh, I can see where he's trying to think outside the box. Right. Right. There's some critique here from people saying, why isn't he spending his time going to the federal government of the U.S., right, as opposed to 
going to Latin America and acting like he is head of state. I mean, he's almost acting like he's the president or an ambassador or a diplomat or, you know, some right. kind of figure with foreign policy authority or credentials. I mean, he's the mayor of New York City. Why is he not spending his time talking to our government now? I'm sure he's going to say he's doing that as well. And in fact, that right. he's as a part of his strategy. But, you know, was it something he should have been entertaining at all? Is it just a PR move? Right. Because he was asked, what did you gain from this trip? And from what I'm seeing, there aren't very many clear answers here. His quote was, was it successful? hundred percent. I don't know that we're not going to know if someone is going to hear the voice of the city say you were not coming to a five star hotel. I'm hoping they did, but I have to try everything to help the city deal with the crisis we are facing. He said he was trying to get to the circulation of misinformation that has painted the city as the best possible place to come. So I'm not seeing a very clear report here as far as what exactly he aimed to accomplish, what he did accomplish in terms of specifics, right? I get the general gist of it is I'm right. discourage people from coming, but how are you achieving that? And did this trip serve that purpose? Or was it just a way to get him in the papers and make it look like he's out here trying to fight the problem? Right. Yeah. I mean, what really would it accomplish? You know, um, I mean, I think, you know, even if he's talking to officials in those countries, I mean, what what is that going to change? What are they going to do? Like lock up people uh, so they can't leave, put a, put a, a cage around the country or something like there are other things that have to be dealt with to prevent people from coming across the border. Um, and more importantly, to deal with what's happening with places like Texas that are just funneling people up to New York because they have their own views on things. It's more of an internal struggle in that regard. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what, what that would accomplish. So apparently he went to Mexico, Ecuador, and Colombia. He also visited the Darien Gap, which is that lawless area between Central and South America, right? It's between Panama and Colombia, which is an area where many people have to cross because it's really the only way, only land route to get towards the U.S. from South America. So people coming from Venezuela in particular will have to cross the Darien Gap to get up into Central America, through Mexico into the US eventually. But it's certainly something that, you know, you can gain knowledge from looking at, but I'm not sure how useful that is in his capacity as mayor. Right. Right. I don't know right. how that's the job as mayor better. Right. That might have been a, a, a trip more suited to someone from like the State Department or something. Right. You know, right. Um, I mean, what is his role when it comes to even our border policy? Now, I understand he's going to go to the federal government and try to lobby them and, and get them to respond in certain ways. But it's kind of, I mean, arguably speaking, I mean, you know, this could be argued both ways, I suppose. But it, arguably speaking, on its face, at least, it seems like it's outside the bounds of what a mayor is there to do. On the other hand, this is a very serious crisis. And maybe it does require unorthodox solutions or approaches, or maybe just trying things outside the box is what we need here, right? Because we've been talking about this for a while. Many people don't seem to have 
concrete, strong solutions to this, or at least, you know, if there are solutions, it seems like they're going to be plentiful. In other words, it's not going to be like one thing we can do to stop this. It seems like we just need to do a lot of maybe small things and some big things, and hopefully cumulatively, it will have a positive effect. And so maybe you do need an all hands on deck, all of the above approach. And, and to be fair, um, he did go reach out to the governor of New York. He did reach out to, you know, the, the federal government. And basically, the response that he's been given is that, you know, deal with it. You know, they don't seem to be willing to to help in the way that he seems to need help or would like to get help. Um, so the governor wasn't interested in, in his idea of spreading some of the 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 population around of people coming through to, to different areas across the state. The federal government blamed him for not having a, an exit strategy, which uh, I don't know, that's kind of crazy because not like he planned to have all of them come to New York City. So, I Some mean, maybe he's back though. in a corner. And I think when he speaks of the misinformation, a lot of that is in the U.S. and in New York City, even. you'll see people accusing the mayor of essentially bringing this crisis on himself. They say, well, he yeah. asked everyone to come and he wants them all here. And now he's trying to undo the damage he caused. When I don't think that's a fair assessment of the situation, you know? And then you have people on the other side of it who say that he was a Republican and he still has these conservative ideas and they're accusing him of being too conservative on the issue. So it seems like he's being attacked from both sides on this. Yeah, it's not it's not an enviable position, and it's a very you know it's it's a very difficult one. Um, not even just the position, but just the the the, the topic itself. You know, um, it's one that has been long debated in the country, even before his tenure. Um, this with with migrants coming over the border versus asylum seekers coming over the border, or what have you. So it's it's you know there are no easy answers um, on that subject. Mayor says he intends to present a plan to federal lawmakers on how they can partner with Colombia to slow the pace down. And he also wants to meet with former President Bill Clinton to discuss potential solutions, given his experience of Latin America policy. You know, I think I don't I don't know if, if it's talked about enough. And that's one thing that I've said should happen is that that the United States should be communicating with with the governments from these countries and seeing what they can do to to help because the people that are leaving the countries to come to the US under duress are not it's not because they want to necessarily come you know i'm sure they love their home countries but they have no other choices and so if conditions were better in in those countries or safer or whatever it was that were causing the reasons for them to, to migrate then we probably see a slowing of that migration we probably see less people trying to come across the border and risk such a dangerous journey to do so because it's it's very treacherous it takes i mean imagine walking all of mexico to get from one side to the other to get through like it's that's yeah. you know that's not so i think walking to brooklyn for a cheesecake Right. You know what I mean? Like, so I think, you know, maybe there's some help that's needed if people are running over because I don't know, Mexico's having a hard time dealing with the cartels and people are, are leaving because it's too dangerous. Then what is it that the United States can do to help? Or what is it that the international community can do to, to help in these regards or, or things like that? 
And that is some perspective that the mayor might have gained from his visit. He might have seen the treacherous conditions, you know, how difficult it is to make that journey. And, and that I'm sure would give you, give anyone some perspective on, wow, you know, for us to be willing to put ourselves through this mm. in order to make it here, you know, how bad must it be in our home? Right. 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 And right. maybe that is a wake up call. You know, m- maybe that would be to anyone if, if you were able to witness that firsthand. I think right. something needs to be done. Now, the, there is always a valid question of you know, whose job is it to do? Right. But right. It, it, I think it just shows that the, the conditions that people must be living in are untenable for them to risk doing all of that to make it here. You know, it's not. Right. It's, yeah. Um, in the chat, Jeremy says some of the countries don't want U.S. interference. Is this a myth? Um, the, my idea wouldn't be the U.S. going in and say, "Okay, this is what you're going to do." It's being it's more what can we do to help? You know, I don't think the U.S. should go in and try to pretend like they're the rulers of things and then occupy the space and say they're going to take control. Like show up there and be like, "Okay, you know, where are the gaps in in in, in your um, fight here? Can we assist in this?" Because we are neighbors. Um, if like it or not, you know, if, if you're talking about problems with the cartels, America does bear a lot of responsibility to that because we are the number one purchasers of the drugs coming from those cartels. Um, but the international community can come through. I mean, we're dealing with basically a humanitarian crisis. If you got that many people that are taking this long journey from different countries to get to somewhere else, there's something that's that's lacking in the humanitarian space. That could use some help and i i would think the un and other countries or neighbors could be like hey maybe we can work together to to elevate everyone in the region so that this is not something that we're seeing right but if it's a matter of directing more money to those countries we kind of find ourselves almost in that same situation right now we're talking about a strain on our resources and essentially not having enough money to pay for this well we would be doing essentially the same thing. I mean, either we're take, spending right. money to take care of the problem here or we're spending it over there, but it's still seemingly a strain on resources, right? Right. I wouldn't think just throwing money at it. I mean, there's there should be some sort of a, a cooperative cooperation that that happens, you know, um, but I don't think just throwing money necessarily at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's got to be there's, there's got to be some other solutions and, and people that can sit down and think, you know, what can we do here to be better neighbors to to at least alleviate the problem a little bit or or whatnot? Right. So, so I'm interested to know what people think out there about this. Is the mayor doing his job in visiting Latin America? Do you see this as more a useless PR stunt? What is it in your estimation? How do you feel about it? So the poll question of the week is, Do you agree with Mayor Adams' efforts to reach out to Latin American countries and encourage their residents not to migrate to the U.S.? Mm. That was that was kind of smooth how you jumped directly into the poll question. I didn't even see it coming. (laughs) I was like, wait, where's he going? Where's he going? Then, oh, okay, the poll question. Okay, like a behind the back pass. That's that's what it was. That's what it was. So Uh, that's what's up. And and, experience, right? Exactly. Getting and then on, the, huh? Getting those reps in. That's that's right. That's right. You're 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 out here shooting in the gym right now. That's right. Um. 
So we'll see what yes. people think about this. There was another effort, I suppose, that was in the news regarding the border wall, right? Mm. Right. Um, so it, it appears that Biden is is going to be um, building. Well, not him himself, because, you know, that might be funny, though, um, about 20 miles worth of of the border wall um, that's on the southern border between Mexico and the U.S. Well, and is it the president building it, though, or is it being built through monies appropriated by Congress? Right. And that's that is what needs to be more succinctly said. And and Biden was asked specifically about it because in his campaign in 2020, he said that he he wasn't going to build it but he was asked this past week about about it and he said that look he tried to get the the funds mis uh reappropriated the opposition wouldn't allow it this was already this money was already appropriated to for the wall so there's nothing that he can do it has to be used for that purpose and then a reporter followed up with a question immediately after saying do you think the border wall would be ineffective and he just flat out said uh, would be effective. And he flat out said no. So it appears that he, he doesn't want to do it, which would be in line with what he promised in his campaign. But if it's already appropriated and there's nothing that he can do, then he's, his hands are tied and it just has to be done. Right, right. Yeah. And once money gets earmarked for certain things, you really can't use it for anything else. And then it's just there not being spent. I remember that when it came to the Rockaway Ferry, I think when Anthony Weiner was congressman way back in the day, he had money allocated for the ferry and it was just sitting there. And only so and so the city was able to opt to use it or not, but the money couldn't be used for any other purpose. Right. So mm. if they were going to access all this money that was allocated to them, they had to use it to do the ferry. Right. Because Congress set the parameters as to what that money is used for. All right. So, yeah, so that's, you know, I wonder if he could, could he just not build it and let the money just sit in the account? Yeah, well, it depends, I guess, on how it's appropriated, right? Right. And who was calling for it in the first place? Like, I'm guessing it wasn't the president who asked for that to be put in there. Right. So, but I guess it's, it's, you know, the fact of the matter, it's getting done. About 20 miles worth is, is getting done. Um, and he was very upfront about he's not happy with, with the fact that it's or that there's nothing that he can do regarding this. So, Yeah, I mean, do you think that a border wall is ever an effective tool? I don't, you know, I don't think so. There are so many ways uh, around it. Um, and, you know, but it's not unheard of in history. I mean, that's the Great Wall of China was basically built to to keep the the Huns out, if I'm not mistaken. And also, there are many miles of wall already, and it's nothing. Right. I mean, on our southern border, we, we have it. There are just certain areas that don't have it. Right, and I think that's another important thing. Like people who are are so pro wall or so anti wall is that. You know, there's already something there in most cases. Um, and so, yeah, I just I don't think it's effective, though. I think it's a waste of money. There's better ways to do that. Um, but here we are.
Yeah, it does seem like there's so much pressure to do something that sometimes people reach for these symbolic gestures, right? They right. Think if you say, oh, I voted on this wall, I got this wall built, that's going to make them look good because it looks like they're the heroes. They stopped it, even though we know that building a little wall is not going to solve the problem. But I think maybe some voters think it will, or it just looks good. Like it looks like they're taking a stand and getting something achieved, right? It's like, it's a symbolic feature. You might say that the mayor Adams going to Latin America is symbolic in that way also. It just, it just looks like they're on their job trying to get something done, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's performative. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I don't it's know. Photographs well. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So. I don't know. I think I think helping helping the the human condition that's causing people to to feel they need to vacate is a is a better strategy, you know, than um, putting up border walls, which is kind of a a punitive measure. Hey, we're back. We're back to kind of the carrot and the stick, you know. Carrot and stick. Yeah. <laughs> so so that'd be an interesting poll. We'll see what uh, what the people have to say in regards to that. And we yeah. do have our poll from last week, our too. Our poll from last week, yeah. So that was about the speaker being ousted for the first time in U.S. history, right? We wanted to know if the people agreed with that move. Right. So, yes, posted up the poll there. Brought up a pretty, uh, pretty good discussion over it. So the question was, do you agree that Speaker Kevin McCarthy should have been ousted from his role as Speaker of the House? Uh, 82% said yes. And 18% said no. So. Okay. They, they, I'm sorry. Okay. So most people saying yes. Yeah. Most people said yes. However, there were a number of things that kept being brought up in the discussion that um, I think were, were good points. Uh, one guy took kind of a, a middle line approach saying that, uh, do I think he should have been ousted? Probably not but only because the GOP caucus can't replace him. But more importantly, do I think the Democrats should have saved McCarthy? No way, especially since he offered nothing in return. Mm. Well, so it's, yeah. You did have all the Democrats voting to oust him though. So is it a matter of saving him or not? Or is it a matter of them actively removing him? Well, here's here's the thing. And a, and a number of people in the comments had the same point is they wish the Democrats would have abstained from voting. They just should have right. just showed up. And then what it would have done is highlighted that this was a Republican mess, right? He wouldn't have lost his speakership. So in that way, they would have saved him because, I mean, they didn't have enough votes to oust him from Republicans only. Um, and so, but th what it would have done was showcase this infighting that's going on in the Republican Party. Here's my question, and it's a procedural one. I guess we might have to do some digging on this, but... I can tell you in the state legislature, at least, the speaker or the majority leader, whoever it is who's in control, essentially decides unilaterally what gets voted on and what doesn't, right? I'm assuming that Speaker McCarthy didn't put this up for a vote voluntarily, right? So how was it even voted on? If the speaker controls the agenda, how did he even get to a vote? Right, because what's his what wasn't it? Gates was the one that called for the vote, but 
He was yeah, pushing I, I, the team with, with all of the Democrats, which is funny in itself, right? All the, the Democrats, I think some did abstain, right? Because some just weren't present for the vote for whatever reason, you can read into that. But all of them who were present voted to remove him. And then you had, I think, eight Republicans joining the effort. These were the more conservative Republicans joining all the Democrats to get rid of McCarthy, who was considered more moderate, I guess, on a Republican scale. So that's how they got the votes, right? But procedurally speaking, how was that brought to it? Right. right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, no idea. Unless there's some mechanism in the House rules that allows for a recall type vote. And obviously in that situation, the speaker is not going to vote to or, or initiate that vote him or herself. And so maybe there's a special procedure for that. Mm. Right. And like I said, it, it kept coming up over and over again. They wish Democrats would have just abstained or just, you know, voted here and then kind of bowed out of the situation. Um, and there were some who said specifically um, for what he was voted out for. No, they don't agree with it. Um, and they kind of, we, we touched on it last week that it kind of seemed like um, he was doing the job um, for the for the job's sake and not for party when he tried to keep the country open, even against the, the fringes of his party, mm -hmm. um, which is probably what prompted you know, this to go on. And so for him to be voted out for that or being put to put to a vote for that isn't really a, a good reason. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like it sets a dangerous precedent now where anytime you have the votes potentially to remove a speaker, you know, they're going to go ahead and, and do it. Right. I mean, because if he could be removed for something which doesn't seem like a, a a very persuasive reason, you know, why else are they going to be trying to get rid of speakers? I'm sure they'll be doing things in the future that, that seem worse than that, right? And now we have the precedent that this has happened before for less. Right. And and he, he, didn't, he hasn't done himself any favors, right? I mean, first of all, it took so many times to get in because no one wanted him in. So there was already his party and the opposite party didn't want him around. Um, he didn't go with what the fringes of his party wanted as far as the shutdown and then on the other side you know he's up for this uh impeachment hearing on biden with no facts so yeah. he really has no no support you know so it's it's kind of amazing that he lasted as long as he did well except for the fact that this has never happened before in u.s history and so i don't think right. there's an expectation that he would be voted out before his term is up Right. But I mean, you would think that someone would be gunning for him beforehand. Um, right. Yeah. And, and I, I think and that's been happening. And you know what? The same has been happening with uh, the efforts to impeach the president. Right. I mean, obviously, we believe that Trump was impeached twice with good reason. But now we're seeing efforts to impeach Biden. It seems like in the foreseeable future, we're going to see efforts to impeach every president, maybe even before they take office. <laughs> and I think that's the precedent that's been set. And I think it, it started, the talks probably started with with Bush. Mm. Um, I, it didn't get to that far, but I think, I mean, Bush was messing up. We, we know at that point he was the bottom of the barrel. And even in the second term, even Republicans were distancing themselves from him. And so there was this talk of, you know, holding him accountable. Um, and then, 
you know, when Obama came in, there was always talk of impeachment with with no basis. Um, and that was partially because, in my opinion, partially because of racism, but partially also because of uh, trying to protect or, or defend against the negativity coming out of the Bush years because of that, that bad imagery that they had. And then when Trump gets in and does get impeached with bases, I mean, it's still, again, we've got to deal with this bad imagery. And so we're going to now push back, too. And it's like. Now we're going to be in a cycle like it, it's they try ridiculous. to muddy the waters. Right. And it's always right. Well, you know, what about you guys? You guys do bad things, too. Or, you know, right. Also should be impeached or, you know, it's, they try to take some of the heat off of themselves by doing that. Oh, right. Um, in the chat, Lixa said, I think it started with Clinton. Well, you know, while Clinton did get impeached, I don't think Democrats did like a revenge impeachment, though. Right. I mean, it was a it was a witch hunt with Clinton, but he did he did lie. Um, but I, I'm thinking what the what the Republicans are doing now is more of revenge impeachment. Right. Tit for tat type of ideology, extremism, whereas I don't think Democrats, you know, countered back right. off of the Clinton impeachment. Well yeah, and let's be clear because I do believe that articles of impeachment have been introduced against every president, right? In recent history, at least. But it doesn't mean that they got anywhere. It could be just a fringe Congress member introducing it for political right. points or whatever, right? Right. But the question is which ones really took off, which ones gained the support of enough to be passed or to even make noise and be taken seriously right because i guarantee you there were articles of impeachment against biden from almost the first day he was in office same with obama right yeah i i don't I don't doubt it um so hopefully this doesn't become just a con a constant thing right uh and and the th here's the problem is like you know when when democrats put up to to impeach trump like there was reason there's basis behind it i mean right now we're looking at 90 indictments that this guy is facing so there's you know where there's smoke there's fire um and so if the next republican gets in and has some sort of a a muddied background is doing a lot of questionable things that are worthy of worthy of impeachment and people move to impeachment impeach him it won't be seen as justified it will be seen as retaliatory and it just will keep perpetuating the cycle yeah yeah Right. I mean, if the next if a Republican gets in and they are, you know, above board and someone moves to impeach him, then, yeah, that's retaliatory. But if they're above board and no one moves to impeach him, that should just reset some stability. But is that who's going to be, in, you know, put in looking at the candidates that are out there now? Is that who's going to be, you know, up to that position? A new Republican, <laughs> a new Republican. I think that's optimistic at this point, unfortunately, like I, in the comments, not likely to be elected next year, right? In the comments of that, that discussion on the poll, like, you know, it was, I was just remembering, like, uh, remember when we thought like the worst of the worst was, was Bush, Ryan and Boehner, mm -hmm. like those guys are like pussycats compared to some of these like Marjorie Taylor greens and right. People used to be afraid of Mitt Romney. Now he's almost trying to be a voice of reason. Right. He's almost cherished by 
reasonable voices these days. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, Jeb. Jeb was a horrible guy, but he seems like a voice of reason in that in that debate that he was in. Like, it was not on that Trump train. In fact, he I think was even trying to help some Democrats get elected in some places who back some of those Trump forces. It's crazy. Um, Lixa in the chat, can we be done with this two-party system? You know, I think, you know, uh, that's not going to be so easy to do. Um, mm. And it's not going to be done at the presidential level. Um, I know people keep saying that and they want to vote for a third-party candidate. Um, it's not going to happen at the presidential level. I think, in my personal opinion, if you want to get um, elevate some other parties, you're going to have to start at the local level. Because when these when these two parties start losing seats to third parties, then they're going to have to pay attention to those local areas to make sure that they don't lose those seats. Right. Um, and that's uh, no third party candidate is going to win the presidency, um, not in the foreseeable future. Not in the near future. No. You know, yeah. and it's funny because the majority of Americans now, I think it's in the 60s in terms of the percentage of Americans want to see a third party right it's mm. most of them will tell you yes and most will also tell you that they they don't want either of the major party front runners to be the nominees with that said we're going to get that and they're going to pick yeah. one or two of those candidates right the third party candidate will not be winning the presidential race and it is difficult because the parties control the system Right. And so right. the process that you would have to overcome to establish a third party is controlled by people in power. I mean, this isn't some conspiracy. It's just that they hold the power now. And so right. they're going to set the rules favorable to themselves. Right. Right. And so, like, yeah, the, the only way, in, in my opinion, the only way to do it is to start winning these local seats, start filling them up in, with, with different um, people from different parties and spreading that local power around. And, you know, people are going to have to campaign differently in that in that regard, you know. Um, well, historically in the U.S., when you've had third party movements pop up, they often have started at the presidential level. Right. Not that a third party candidate was successful in winning the presidency. But, for example, Teddy Roosevelt, after he was president. Right. He supported Taft to replace them, had a falling out with Taft, decided to run again and did not get the Republican nomination at the time. So he ran third party, the Bull Moose Party. I know Jeremy in the chat is a big fan of the Bull Moose reference. So yeah, that effort was not successful in that he did not achieve the presidency again. However, that party became a part for this for a few years, at least it became a viable third party throughout the US. And there were local elections won mm. by Bull Moose Party members, right? And so from the top down, you could inspire a movement like that. I don't think you're going to be able to win the White House running now as a third party, but maybe it could spark local parties influenced by or, you know, offshoots of your national party that could do something at the local level. Right, right. And I think people at the local level, especially when when wins and voting is such has such slim margins at the local level the people have a lot more control um over um uh, you know which way that the the wind blows in that regard so i mean you can get a couple of um 
couple of big organizations, local community organizations that go to these parties and say, okay, well, you know, is your candidate willing to do this or interested in this or and that? And if they don't, like, okay, well, we're going to a candidate who does. Yeah. And really have a bit big impact on on that. And so I think that's where that needs to needs to come from. You know what's funny? There was a candidate who ran for governor of New York named, I believe her name was Samantha A. Minor, right? And she was the mayor of a city in New York, might have been Rochester or Syracuse, I forget which one. But in New York in particular, the way to officially establish a third party is to run someone for governor and to get a certain number of votes in the gubernatorial race. And if you reach that threshold, then you're recognized by New York as a third party until the next governor's race. And so mm. this one candidate ran and she had to make up her own party line. She was going to be third party, pick up, pick a party name. But just for her ballot line, she chose the Sam party, which is her initials, Stephanie A. Minor, I believe, right? Sam party. Well, she received enough votes for the Sam party to be recognized as a party in New York for the next four years. And they actually ran candidates under the Sam line, but they didn't want to call it Stephanie A. Minor anymore. And so they changed it to, I think, the Save America movement or something like that, right? So, <laughs> because now they have this party and they got to do something with it. So they try to make it more marketable. <laughs> it didn't, didn't, wasn't, um, what is it? Uh, uh, the rent is too damn high party. Uh, uh, that never qualified. No, 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 no. Never? It was no, never? No, no, it no. should have? Well, come on. That's the only party that made sense. Someone, Someone is, check me on now. <laughs> Did I thought it was. Votes for governor. Could people ever enroll in the rent is too damn high party? I don't believe so. You know, I, I might enroll in there. I might, you know. Might I, like, I like the message. And, and as a, a karate expert, I think, you know, the leader of the movement is uh someone that's very trustworthy looks in the chat says i want to start the they party <laughs> the they party mike scala's they party oh my goodness so they're taking over the world <laughs> they are they definitely are so but we'll see what the poll how the, what the poll results are um and hopefully we get some more lively discussion and debate on it as we did with this previous poll. So, yes. So last topic we can talk about briefly before we sign off here. There was an unfortunate, really a tragic incident in Brooklyn recently. It was a young man who was stabbed mm. with his girlfriend and they were coming back from a wedding they took the Long Island Railroad back to Brooklyn and they were waiting at a bus stop at about four o'clock in the morning when uh, the man was stabbed by someone walking by. It seems this guy knocked over some scooters first and you know, he passed them. He, he, he walked past the bench they were sitting on, kicked over some scooters. And then you can see from the surveillance video, the couple got up and started walking towards this guy who kicked over the scooters and a confrontation ensued which resulted in the man who was with the, his girlfriend being stabbed to death. A very tragic incident that has been politicized to high hell. And I think this is just an example of how it's dangerous that we politicize everything so much because this is all over social media or has been over the past week. And 
people are saying all sorts of things, really just trying to make their political points that they already have. They have these agendas and they've been trying to make them maybe for years. And then everything that happens, they try to find a way to contort it to fit their agenda. So, of course, mm -hmm. this being a stabbing, you have your people saying, oh, you see, so guns don't kill people. People can kill people in other ways. Like as if anyone ever said that a knife is not possible to, to use as a right. Right? Like, So you have that. Then you have the fact that this gentleman, his name was uh, Ryan Carson. He was apparently a left wing activist of some sort. And so, of course, people are bringing that into it and saying that his own political leanings were somehow responsible for his death because it made him confront the guy instead of walking away. He thought he was going to be a nice guy. I don't know what, what they're even getting at with that, but it's just tragic that this happened and tragic on another level that people are politicizing every element of it. I see it as a microcosm of what we've got going on in society now where you can't get away from it. Anything that happens, you'll see, we talked about this. This is what happens when you vote Democrat or you keep voting Republican or whatever. It has nothing to do with that. Right. This was a, right. a, a incident of violence on the street, a man getting stabbed and it becomes entirely too political. Yeah. I mean, people want want to validate their their own position uh, and do it whatever way they can. And, and everybody does it. It's 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 not useful, especially in the public discourse. And it's very extreme at this present time. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and there's no way that we can come to any kind of consensus or solutions when we're this divided. And it's a visceral reaction people have, right? Right. Serves him right. Here was another one. Apparently, he laughed on social media when Rush Limbaugh died. I believe that's what mm. it is. And so some people are saying that this serves him right. You know, it's karma because he laughed at another man dying, so he deserves to be killed. It's just so much hate, right? Yeah. Right now, there's just, uh, or or it's just maybe not right now. It's probably always been there. It's just that it's just it's so out front. It's so blatant and in the mainstream. And you know, we've got a lot that we got to do to to curb that, to get away from that, to get that out of the public discourse. And you know, it just seems like it's a, a losing battle in many regards. I don't know. It's like it's just amplified to extreme volumes now to the point because well, everyone has a everyone has a voice. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the one of the pros of, of things like social media is that anyone can put a message out and, and be read by the world. And then one of the, the issues with that is that the wrong message could get amplified. Right. Mm -hmm. um, those echo chambers. People can find echo chambers to fit into instead of before where you didn't have that access. Um, it's just, you know, it, it is it's a bonus and a, and, a, and a negative. But how do we get how do we steer around that? You know, yeah, that we tone it down and get our priorities in check. Not everything needs to be politicized to the nth degree. Right. Here's someone wrote, coming home from a wedding at 4 a.m., random? Nothing is random. There is more to this story. Unfortunately, we will never know it. So they're trying to make a conspiracy. A conspiracy. Out of the, yeah, like, 
<laughs> why, why are they coming home at 4 a.m.? And I agree that that's a dangerous time to be out taking a bus in Brooklyn or anywhere, really. But, you know, they're trying to make it act out like the they is responsible for this, right? The they in the sky. Yeah, that, you know, I mean, everybody thinks that there's, I mean, some kind of, con not everybody, there's a lot of people that think there's a conspiracy behind everything uh, that happens. And, you know, to be fair, there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes, but not everything is, you know, a conspiracy. Yeah. Like, like the him being there at 4 a.m. in the morning, it would take a lot of wrangling to to force that to happen so that a, a, a stabbing could take place, you know? Right, right. You know, I do have this reaction, and maybe some people will say I'm politicizing. I'm trying not to politicize this, but... Uh-oh. I mean, because everything, the thing is this, you can't even have a conversation because everything is political. That's the other side of this, right? Everything is political now. And so whatever you say is going to be looked at through a political lens. Uh-oh, well, Scala hot take. No, it's not even that. It's that it's dangerous to be out taking public transportation at that time of night. And so they would have been safer in a car or an Uber. And I know the narrative now is that that's, not something that we should be encouraging, right? That everyone should be on public transit. But I do think that there is a safety issue here that, you know, is it safe, especially now when you look at the, the incidents of crime that we see and, and oftentimes they do take place on or around public transportation. Should we be encouraging everyone to be on trains and buses at all hours of the night? You know, I think there's a, a legitimate safety consideration there. Yeah, I mean, but at the same time though, like, you know, some people have no, no other choice like i mean i think um i know when i i used to work um i was manager for a retail place in 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 hawaii and um i used to have to take the first bus in the morning and that was like that wouldn't start at like till like 5 five thirty. um and so you're talking about five o'clock four thirty. i would be on the bench at the bus stop mm -hmm. um and so, you know i would just fall asleep on the bench which was probably not the safest but that's yeah. <laughs> but sometimes people i mean there are even even if it's not someone coming from a wedding there are people who may have to take public transportation at four in the morning to get to work some people may have to sure yeah but should we be encouraging everyone and basically shaming people right like that's what's happening now People are being shamed into never taking a car and always being on the bus or on the train. And I'm saying that might not be the safest option all the time. Maybe it might not be, um, you know. So it's 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 a tragedy either way. Yeah. You know, you would you would hope that that even at 4 a.m. in the morning that nothing would would happen in a civilized society right right but we are seeing more and more of these incidents right you know we, we definitely need to do something about it it's gonna get worse before it gets better well let's hope not but you know hopefully something can be done uh, what is yeah. this in the chat, it's okay to take public transportation at 4 a.m., but don't approach someone who is mentally unstable. I mean, and I don't know about this incident, but 
sometimes that's unavoidable you know if the person is mentally unstable sometimes they come to you yeah. um and oh, walking away even if they aren't walking away is not always a, a a real solution because they will just follow you you know right. if it's a person that's intent on doing something whether you or not whether you check out or not is is kind of irrelevant yeah and it's unclear from the video at least from what i saw because there was no sound on the video that i saw i don't know if they were confronting him intentionally it did seem odd that after this guy walked past them and knocked over the scooters they got up and started walking towards him so they might have confronted him maybe he said hey hey man what are you doing i don't know i hmm. didn't hear that but it did seem odd that they got up from the bus stop and started walking towards him maybe that wasn't the best move but i really don't know how it went down because you couldn't hear anything right right yeah it could be a, a number of, of situations and scenarios yeah it could have been a coincidence that they were getting up and walking that way but maybe the guy saw it as him being confronted or approached you know i don't know because from, from what i read he yelled out what are you looking at to the guy and then, so then he's i'm gonna kill you right now and took out a knife and came after who him. said what are you looking at the guy who kicked, who kicked over the scooters oh he said yeah. that to the guy and you know and you see him to, and apparently he says from from what i read he said i'm gonna kill you right now he takes out a knife and then you see in the video of them struggling the guy tries to push him back and then he turns to run and he trips over the bench that he was just sitting on and he falls to the ground and the guy stabs him i think he stabs him in the, in the back and kills him mm. yeah it's it's a tragedy yeah so well hopefully things uh, like i said hopefully they do get better instead of getting worse yeah yeah but i think for us to get to that point we need to as i've said before turn down the heat really stop politicizing that, that's gonna be my bottom line for the week i was gonna say it just sounded like you're going into a bottom line go ahead yeah. no the bottom line is stop politicizing everything right let's put people over politics because i know there's an urge to make everything overtly political but that hinders our ability to reach any kind of solution all it does is keep us at each other's throats right absolutely and and i think that's a it's a, it's a good it's a good thing to to reiterate right it, it's something that we need to to keep in mind all the with all the time so that we can try to move away from that and with that being said people can uh find us on on youtube at uh at nuance show um instagram at nuance show and uh everywhere that podcasts are and in your dreams baby all right i like that and once again we are marching towards 100,000 views on youtube we will do something special we have to commemorate that in some way so why don't you guys let us know what should we do when we get to 100,000 views as always, mm. we've got work to do, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>